The dwarves all lined up behind him. No, Gerald, don't! It must be a trap! yelled one. The dog thinks, uh-oh, I'm in deep trouble now. If you try to slide down that pole, you know what's going to happen? What, Uncle Tom? You're going to die. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's always such a pleasure to bring these stories to you, and we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Some of the stories that we'll bring you will be fantastical tales from all over the world, but that's what they're for, aren't they? Stories is to help us understand our own lives and the lives of the people around us even better, and even fantastical stories can do that. Now, if you know anything about animals, you know that you shouldn't ever get between a mother animal and her child, whether it be a bird or a moose or a bear. They always protect their young with a ferocity that would frighten anyone, even if the animal is very small. They're ferocious because they know there can be real threats out in the world to their young ones. And just as young animals have their protectors in their mothers, we sometimes find that we have protectors too. And they can be parents, of course, but also siblings and friends and maybe even others, people who help us face the world with confidence so that we can succeed and defend us when we need defending. Here on The Appleseed, we're going to bring you stories about people who protect others or who protect themselves through all kinds of different means. We've got stories from Sheila Starks, Antonio Sacre, and a song by Ryan Shoup that you'll enjoy, and it's going to be a great hour. We're going to start, though, with a story from Sandra Singer. This is a story called Gerald the Giant, and in this story, there is, uh, well, there's a giant named Gerald, and he's a kind giant who lives with a community of dwarves. He's kind of their protector, and as much as Gerald loves his dwarf neighbors, he gets kind of lonely without the company of someone else more like him. And when another giant comes through their neck of the woods, Gerald has to decide whether the giant is a threat or if she really just needs a friend. Here's Sandra Singer with a story called Gerald the Giant. It's from a collection called Stories of Rhythm and Fantasy. You'll enjoy it. A story, a story, a story, come listen to my story. This tale is about getting along, whether you're a giant or even a dwarf. Gerald the Giant Gerald the Giant came to Dwarfland many years ago on an invitation from the king of the dwarves. The king liked the view out over the lands beyond his, so he didn't want to build a wall to protect his kingdom. Instead, he thought that a cordial but intimidatingly large giant would keep away any threat to the land. So he put out the call and interviewed numerous giants. He was looking for a particular type of giant, a giant who could greet friendly visitors with a smile and good directions around the kingdom— but who could also raise himself or herself up to full size, put on a mean face, growl, and be strong enough to really protect the kingdom in time of crisis. This giant had to be intelligent so that he could outsmart any attacker. Some of the giants that the king interviewed way back when were fit and smart, but weren't good at smiling. Others were great at smiling, but had nothing to say. 
So you see, the king had to talk to lots of giants before the right one came along. He knew right away that Gerald was the right giant to hire. That was because Gerald walked in humbly, and made the king smile with a great story about his journey. But when the king asked him what he would do if someone tried to attack, and his good nature didn't work, Gerald raised himself up to full height, and I'm sorry to say, broke through the roof of the castle. It took a few weeks to repair the roof, but the king was satisfied that Gerald was his giant. Hired, he said. How tall was this giant? Well, there was nothing taller than he in all the land. In fact, twenty dwarves could stand on each other's shoulders and still not reach the giant's beard. Gerald could disarm most nasty villains by telling a story or a joke. The attacker would listen and follow Gerald, who would continue to tell the story and walk the bad guy out of the dwarves' kingdom. Before the villain knew what was happening, Gerald would have escorted them so far, and they were laughing so hard that they would drop the whole idea of attacking. Even if a whole army showed up. Gerald could get them all laughing so hard they'd forget why they came, so they'd leave, and we hope gave up fighting altogether. But then again, if they didn't laugh and leave, that's when Gerald stood up, put on his growly face, and defended the kingdom with his might. Fortunately, he didn't have to do that very often. Here's one story that Gerald would tell. Say, have you heard the one about the giant and the frog? The frog was a silly frog. You know what he did? He said, "Hey, Mister Giant, why don't you dive into my pond? See, it's fun." And the frog dived into the water, hardly splashing at all. The giant thought, "Why not?" So he dived headfirst into the pond. But you know what? That pond was shallow. So the giant. <laughs> The giant hit his head on the bottom of the pond and stuck there in the mud. You should have seen him, sticking straight up in the air. When people came by the pond, they laughed and laughed at the silly giant until a hundred dwarves pulled him out. He had to walk all the way to the ocean and take a bath. He never trusted that frog again. Gerald came up with lots of stories that made everyone laugh, and so it went. For years and years, Gerald got his daily exercise by circling the kingdom, walking lightly so as not to make the earth around the dwarf homes bounce too much. Gerald's best friend among the dwarves was Mortimer. Sometimes Gerald would pick up Mortimer, set him on his shoulder, and they would circle the kingdom together. They told each other secrets and dreams that they had. Gerald one day told Mortimer that he was lonely. Not that he didn't love the dwarves, but he missed having company from his own kind. Not that he wasn't happy, but he could be happier. One day, Mortimer and a friend went on a stroll outside the kingdom. When they'd gotten just a few hundred yards from where Gerald sat, these dwarves saw footprints—big footprints. They were almost as big as Gerald's. They followed them for. Over an hour, then came to a forest. They braved their way in, still following those huge footprints, walking slowly, and looking all around them as quiet as they could be. Then, suddenly, they found the owner of those big footprints. It was another giant, and it was a lady. 
Oh, boy, thought Mortimer, someone Gerald's own size that he could talk to. He wouldn't be lonely anymore. But this lady giant was no Gerald. When she saw the dwarves, she stood up, put her hands on her waist, spread her legs apart, had a big scowl on her face, and seemed to challenge them. Who are you? she wanted to know, and what are you doing in my territory? Your territory? asked Mortimer. Oh, we're sorry. We haven't been through here in a long time. We followed your footprints here. Were you perhaps near our、uh, territory? The lady giant wasn't phased at all. Yes, I wandered near to your land, it's true, but I was just curious. That's all. I saw it, then I came back. Go back to where you came from. Then she picked up a couple of big rocks and threatened to throw them at the little dwarves. The dwarves didn't waste any time. They turned around and ran all the way back, stopping occasionally just to make sure the lady giant wasn't following them. When they got to the edge of the dwarf kingdom, there was good old Gerald sitting back, thinking up new stories to tell. But when he saw the looks on the dwarves' faces, he stood up and waited for them. What's wrong? Did someone or something try to harm you? The dwarves got to Gerald breathless. We found another giant, a lady, said Mortimer. A lady giant? <laughs> That's great. I told you I've wanted a friend. Where is she? No, no, Gerald, you don't understand. We ran away because she chased us away with rocks. Hmm, said Gerald. That doesn't sound very friendly. Maybe she's just lonely like me. I'll take her a gift. Tell me where she is. So, Gerald went to the land of the lady giant and brought her a present. To make peace, Gerald picked some flowers. Well, you know how big Gerald was. They were actually flowering trees, apple trees. It was spring, and the apple blossoms were in full bloom. Surely she'd like those. So Gerald walked carefully over to the lady giant's forest with his bouquet of apple trees in his hand. The lady giant, I should say now that her name was Jillian, saw Gerald coming. She didn't care that he was bringing her a nice bouquet of apple trees at all. She didn't want him there, period. She wanted to be left alone. So she picked up a really big rock, a boulder, held it over her head, and said, Come one step closer, buddy, and this rock is headed straight toward your head. Gerald was surprised and disappointed, but he bent down, put the bouquet on the ground, and walked back home. By the time Gerald got back to the dwarf kingdom, and that wasn't very long, the word about the mean lady giant had spread. Everyone, it seemed, was worried about this new threat. Always before, attackers were smaller than Gerald. The few giants that had come by over the years were friendly. The dwarves worried because Gerald was such a nice giant. Could he protect them from a really evil giant? So, by the time Gerald got back, the story about Jillian and the wandering dwarves had gotten a little out of hand. You know how that can happen. Mortimer told his story. Those people exaggerated it a little bit when they told someone. Then the next person exaggerated it a little bit more. By now, Many of the dwarves thought that Jillian had followed Mortimer and his friend home to the dwarf land and that she had threatened to invade the kingdom. Before brave Gerald drove her back into the forest, and that's where Gerald was right now. Gerald 
did manage to clear up most of the confusion when he got back. But everyone was still afraid. Why, if this lady giant was threatening to hit Gerald with a big boulder, who knows what else she might do? She knew where they lived. She could come there in the night with a bunch of giants and a bunch of boulders, and, and, and then what? The dwarves had to protect themselves after all, right? What if Gerald guarding them wasn't enough? Well, this idea got all of the dwarves scared. Pretty soon, every dwarf in the kingdom was getting rocks piled next to their homes, and every home had a night watch dwarf staying awake all night. After a while, everyone in the kingdom was getting cranky from lack of sleep, and dwarves started getting sick from all the worry. Less work got done, and I must also say less play happened as well. Gerald now stayed put in front of the dwarves' kingdom instead of walking around it, with boulders ready in case that lady giant showed up to attack. Weeks went by. The dwarves thought they heard evil sounds in the night, but nothing happened. They were getting impatient. Then, one day, Jillian showed up at the edge of the dwarf kingdom. She was alone, and she was crying. Gerald didn't know what to do. Was this a trap? He was a kind-hearted giant, really, and had been very uncomfortable with all the boulders around and with his dwarves all tense. So he decided to walk carefully toward Jillian. The dwarves all lined up behind him. No, Gerald, don't! It must be a trap, yelled one. She's dangerous, cried another. At least take a rock with you, suggested a third. More and more of the dwarves shouted, one on top of the other, until Gerald could no longer distinguish what they were saying. But Gerald was a trusting giant. He'd always been so. So he kept walking and stopped just feet from Jillian. Then he said, Once upon a time, there was a giant, just like me. And see, he liked to play ball, but there was no one around his own size to play with. So when he threw balls to the dwarves, he ended up knocking a few of them down. That didn't work so well. <laughs> so he wished for a friend his own size to come visit. He wished, and he wished. Then one day... He found another giant. But that giant didn't want to talk to him. In fact, the other giant seemed like she might hurt me. I mean, our friendly giant. So he went away and waited. But you know what happened? No, asked Jillian. What happened? <laughs> the mean giant was only kidding. You see, she was lonely too. She was just afraid of the friendly giant. She'd been alone for a long time, too. That's right, isn't it? Meanwhile, the dwarves were crazed. They were yelling for Gerald to get out of the way if he wasn't going to defend them. They'd take care of this mean lady giant themselves. But Gerald just looked at Jillian and waited. It was so quiet between the two giants for so long that the dwarves finally stopped yelling and just watched. They still had their hands on rocks just in case, but they stopped yelling. Finally, Jillian raised her head and looked at Gerald and the dwarves. I can't imagine how it's looked to you. I've been so mean to you. 
First I sneak over to your land, then I get upset when you follow my tracks. But I was afraid. I've been living in the forest alone for a long time, and I guess I've forgotten that beings can be nice. After I threatened you with that big boulder and you left, I was so sad and sorry that I chased you away. Now I see what I've done. I've made you all afraid of me. Please, put down your rocks. The dwarves didn't know if they could trust this giant yet, but Gerald did. He walked right up to Jillian and said, So, I hope you like bad jokes. How many giants does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> None. Giants don't have lamps. <laughs> Jillian smiled and reached out her hand. Gerald took it, and they walked off to talk things over. Now that the emergency was over, the king ordered everyone to go home. That's exactly what the dwarves did, and so they were able to catch up on much-needed sleep. After a few weeks of calm and quiet, the dwarves took off a whole day and played and danced and celebrated. Jillian joined Gerald and settled right there in front of the dwarf kingdom. After that, when Gerald took his walk, Jillian went with him. Gerald was happy that Jillian liked his jokes. Neither of them was lonely anymore. And everyone learned what? They learned that they shouldn't jump to giant conclusions about what others intend. Someone could get hurt. And nobody wants that. Sandra Singer with Gerald the Giant, a story about a giant who has set himself as the protector of a community of dwarves. But then along comes another giant. What do you do? Well, maybe that's uh, not just a fantastical story, but a story with something for you and your loved ones to talk about when it comes to conversation around the dinner table or the living room or the campfire. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show can provide a jumping-off point for some of the things that you might want to talk about as loved ones. We're going to take a quick break. Before we go, we want to remind you that you can find us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, an archive there of all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the show. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll be back with a little music and also a little something from the great storyteller Antonio Sacre. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be back with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Gerald the Giant, a story from Sandra Singer from a collection called Stories of Rhythm and Fantasy. And we thought we'd bring you a little music up next. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about this song. It was commissioned by Clive Romney, a storyteller and songwriter and producer who spends his life discovering the stories of the communities in his part of the world, and then hiring songwriting and storytelling friends of his to write songs and tell stories to immortalize some of the 
tales of the people who live in his Mountain West home. And his next song is called Soul Provider. It's inspired by the true story of a guy who drove millions of miles as a long-range truck driver and uh, then decided to cash in his hand and come home to care for his family in a small Utah town and spend the rest of his days not on the road but at home with his growing family. And looking for a career that would help him remain closer to those that he loved, he took up boot making and is now one of the premier boot makers in the region. People from all over come to Don Walker to provide them with beautiful leather boots. And now maybe you understand the joke of the title of the song, a song called Soul Provider, performed by Ryan Shoup here on The Appleseed. I've been long out on the highway But I'm finally coming round Time for this soul Nebraska boy to find a patch of Utah ground Out along two million miles The road can cut you down to size So I turned around Came back home to my lady and my boys I'll be There's one thing that I learned Out on the road from where I came Though the places all were different All the roads look just the same These hands will do just what I tell them And I'm telling them to stay And to work this blessed leather For the cowboys on their way I'll be your soul Countryside and the city Through the nighttime and the day Cause I imagine every traveler Needs some shoes to get him through And those boots will walk the miles I drove To get me back to you 
Ryan Shoup performing Soul Provider, a song written inspired by the story of Don Walker, who lived a life on the road for many years and then decided to cash in his hand and find a career that allowed him to stay closer to his growing family. Became one of the premier bootmakers in his region. It's a nice introduction to this section of the program, an hour of the Appleseed dedicated to stories about protectors, people who uh, will protect and defend us when we need it. At the top of the hour, you heard a story called Gerald the Giant, a story by Sandra Singer about a giant who uh, has assigned himself to be the protector of a community of dwarves. And when another giant comes to town, he wonders if that giant is a threat or just in need of a friend. Up next, we've got a story by Sheila Starks Phillips, a story called Dog Outsmarts the Leopard. Sometimes when there's no one else, you have to protect yourself. And we've all seen, you know, Disney's Tarzan fight a jaguar and win, right? But what if you didn't have to fight? What if there was another way out? Well, maybe there is. In this story, our friend Dog has the answers on how to defeat a leopard using nothing but wit and quick thinking. Here's Sheila Starks Phillips from Sugarland, Texas, recipient of the John Henry Falk Award. The story is Dog Outsmarts the Leopard, here on The Appleseed. I have an uncle named Uncle Charlie, and he had a ranch he lived on just south of Amarillo up in the panhandle of Texas. And one day he decided that he would enjoy going on a hunting safari in Africa because he was a big hunter. So he took along his faithful elderly dog named Killer, took him along for company. They got there and were having the most wonderful time, and of course they had a guide that was showing them where the best hunting was. And one day the old dog starts chasing rabbits or whatever it was out there he was chasing, and before long he discovered that he was lost. Wandering around, he noticed a leopard heading rapidly in his direction with the intention of having lunch, having lunch of the old dog killer. The dog thinks, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in deep trouble now. Noticing some bones on the ground close by, he immediately settles down to chew on the bones with his back to the approaching cat. Just as the leopard is about to leap, the old dog exclaims very loudly, Boy, that was one delicious leopard. I wonder if there's any more good leopards around here, because I'm still hungry. Hearing this, the young leopard halts his attack in mid-strike. A look of terror comes over him, and he slinks away into the trees. Whew, said the leopard. That was close. That old dog nearly had me. Meanwhile... There was a monkey who had been watching this whole scene from a nearby tree, and he figured that he can put this knowledge to good use and trade it for protection from the leopard. So off he goes. But the old dog sees him heading after the leopard with great speed, and he figures something's must be up. Then the monkey soon catches up with the leopard, and he spills the beans and strikes a deal for himself with the leopard. The young leopard is furious of being made a fool of, and he says, Here, monkey, hop on my back, and you'll see what's going to happen to that conniving canine. Now, the old dog sees the leopard coming with the monkey on his back, and he thinks, What am I going to do now? 
But instead of running, the dog sits down with his back to the attacker, pretending he hasn't seen them yet. And just when they get close enough to hear, the old dog says, Where is that darn monkey? I sent him off an hour ago to bring me another leopard. Now there's a moral to this story. Don't mess with the old dogs. Age and skill will always overcome youth and treachery. BS and brilliance only come with age and experience. Sheila Starks Phillips, one of the great Texas storytellers, with a story called Dog Outsmarts the Leopard, a story in an hour's worth of stories about protectors to remind you that sometimes when there's no one else around, you got to protect yourself. And sometimes you can protect yourself by using your wit, your smarts. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today, sharing stories not only from Sheila Starks Phillips, but of course before that you heard Soul Provider, performed by Ryan Shoup, a song written in, uh, inspired by, really, Don Walker. Don Walker, who lived a life on the road and then decided to come home and, and have a career that kept him closer to his growing family. He became a renowned boot maker. It was a pleasure to bring you Soul Provider. Soul Provider, get it? Boots, got it? Yeah, well, of course you get it. Now, at the top of the hour, of course, you heard a story from Sandra Singer, a story called Gerald the Giant. Now, up next, we've got a story from the great L.A. storyteller Antonio Sacre. He grew up in a heritage of mixed Cuban and Irish parentage, his father from Cuba, his mother Irish-American. And with that blend of culture came a lot of good stories. But Antonio wasn't always good at telling stories. When he was a kid, he had to practice a lot to get the hang of it. And we'll still talk about how much he practices to get a story right before he tells these stories to his beloved audiences. And in this story, he tells how he began storytelling and some of his favorite stories about his uncle, Tom. Here's Antonio Sacre with Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. When I was eight years old, raise your hand if you are eight years old. Raise your hand if you used to be eight years old. Raise your hand if you hope to one day be eight years old. I think that covers all of us. My mom gave me, for my birthday, a book. It was not this book, but it was a book like it. It was blank, nothing on the front, nothing on the back. I love books. I said, thanks, Ma. She said, you're welcome, honey. I opened to the first page. It was blank. Okay. Opened to the next page. It was blank, too. I opened to the next I was only eight. I said, Ma, this book is broken. You older kids know what kind of a book she gave me. What kind of a book did my mom give me when I was eight? Yes, right here. What do you think? Yeah, journal. There's other, other names for that, too. What else do you call it? Yeah, right here. Loud voice. Yeah, you. A diary. That's true. What else could you call it? Yeah? A notebook. Or any other names? Yeah, loud voice. Yeah? A sketchbook. All of these things. My mom said, that's a blank book. You can write in it as a diary. You can keep notes like a journal. You can sketch in it. I said, Really? Mom, you always told me I couldn't write in the library books. She said, honey, you can't write in library books, but in this book, you can write whatever you want. I said, whatever I want, whatever you want. Oh, cool. That night, I sat down, opened up to my first blank page, got out my pen, put it on the page, and 
I had no idea what to write. How many people have ever looked at a blank page and had no idea what to write? How many teachers here have ever given the dreaded, what did you do on your summer vacation essay? Who's ever had to write out that essay and had no idea what to write, even though you had an incredible summer? I had trouble looking at the blank page the next morning at breakfast. I said, Mom, I didn't know what to write. She said, Honey, don't worry. Today, you're going to have all kinds of things happen at school. I want you to remember them, come home, and write them down. Okay, Ma. She was right. That day at school, all kinds of things happened. I knew I was going to probably fill the whole journal. When I got home, I put my pen down and it. I forgot all of them. <laughs> How many people have no trouble filling a blank page in a journal? How many people like to draw pictures in a journal? How many people would rather make paper airplanes out of page in a journal? <laughs> Who would rather crumple up a ball and shoot baskets with a journal? All right. Well, for a long time, I didn't know what to write in my journal until finally I got inspired. I got home one day, and I ran to my journal, and I wrote my very first sentence of the very first story I ever wrote. Today, I had lunch. Wow. <laughs> I was so proud. I was only eight. I just learned to write cursive. I showed my mom. She said, that's a Good story, honey. Tomorrow you should add some details to it. Okay, Ma. The next day I came home, I wrote my second story. Today I had lunch again. <laughs> my mom said, Way to go, honey. Keep writing. Poco a poco, se llena el saco. Little by little, you fill the sack. And the next day my mom said, Add some adjectives. So I wrote my third story ever. Today, I had lunch again, dot, 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 mmm. <laughs> and pretty much my first journal ever were little sentences like that. But just like a sport, the maybe you have some sport geniuses out here. Who's ever played basketball? When you picked up a basket, tell me the truth. Who made the very first basket you ever shot? Who didn't make a basket until after a hundred shots? That was me. Well, with writing, it's just like a sport. For me, at least, I have to practice and practice and practice. And so my first journal was full of silly stories like that, but my second journal got a little better, and my third journal got a little better, and in my fourth journal, I began to write about one of my favorite uncles. Raise your hand if you have a favorite uncle. Raise your hand if you have an uncle that is a little bit weird. Raise your hand if you have an uncle that maybe is not as scary as the great-granddad that Jennifer, but is a little bit scary, more scary than that, not okay. One of my favorite uncles is my, one of my mom's brothers. Now, I'm going to talk a lot this weekend about my father's family. My father's family comes from Cuba. What language do they mostly speak in Cuba? Spanish. Levanta la mano si habla español. Uh, some people speak Spanish. Okay. My father's family comes from Cuba, and I have a favorite uncle on my father's Cuban side. My mom's family comes from Ireland, and they ended up settling in Boston. And I have a lot of uncles on my mom's side. And in Boston, they speak another language, too. They speak Boston. I saw a Boston Red Sox shirt out here. Who's a long-suffering Boston Red Sox fan? Is there some other ones out here? Okay. We're having a rough year this year. So my mom has three brothers, and she has one sister, and I have stories about all of them. But my favorite uncle, 
Uh, it's hard to say that. No, but it's true. My favorite uncle is my mom's older brother, Uncle Tom. Thomas Keith, that's his name. And Uncle Tom is a fireman. You're listening to a story called Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death, told for you by the great storyteller Antonio Sacre. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. You know the story's not over, because if the story is called Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death, how could it be over when we've just met Uncle Tom and haven't yet met the roller coaster? If the title of that story is already bringing to mind some of your favorite roller coaster experiences, then you're not alone. Even as we go to break, I'm thinking of riding the Colossus, the fire dragon, at the theme park closest to my house. The second roller coaster I ever rode, and the first with an upside-down loop. Oh, I'm terrified just thinking about it. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with the rest of Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death from Antonio Sacre. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard just the very beginning of a story called Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death. We haven't even met the roller coaster yet, and maybe you're already thinking of some of your favorite roller coaster experiences. I told you before the break about one of my first roller coaster experiences, riding a roller coaster with an upside-down loop in it, only the second roller coaster I'd ever ridden, and that experience experience was made even more terrifying by reading in the newspaper about the coming of that roller coaster to that theme park, reading that the guy who had assembled it had assembled it primarily from memory, a fact that made riding the roller coaster all the more terrifying. I don't know what roller coaster memories have come to you as you prepare to meet the roller coaster of death, but you're about to get some of Antonio Sacre's roller coaster memories. This is a live performance in front of an audience at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. And uh, again, the story is called Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death. We're going to bring you the conclusion of the story. But before we do, we want to remind you that you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. There's an archive there of all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. Some of the storytellers that you've heard today are represented there in the archive, and there are surely storytellers there that will become favorites for you as you listen to them. You can also subscribe to the Appleseed Podcast. Just Google us, and you'll find us lickety-split, and you can subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. Not only these full hour-long episodes, like the one you're enjoying now, but also mini-episodes. We call them Appleseed Extras, for when you only have a few minutes and you want to fill that few minutes with a great story or a great conversation or a great piece of music. And now the conclusion of Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death from Antonio Sacre. We had just met Antonio Sacre's favorite uncle, Tom, the firefighter. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. And when we were younger, he would take one of us to the firehouse for a special trip just by ourselves. Now, there are 15 cousins. The oldest was 10 years older than me, so I had to wait a long time until it was my time to go to a firehouse. Who's ever been to a firehouse? 
Oh, it was so great. I was only three and a half or four years old. My uncle was six feet, three inches tall, muscles everywhere. To this day, he's still very strong. But back then, he was young and strong, and he took me to the firehouse. It was so exciting. He took me all the way up to the top floor, and in the middle of the floor was that brass pole that went all the way down. Has anyone slid down that brass pole? Some of you had. It's kind of scary, isn't it? My Uncle Tom showed me that brass pole. He says, this is what I do, kid. That's the Boston speaking a little bit. What he said was, this is what I do, kid. Anyway, he went over to the bed. He laid down. He says, go over there and ring that bell. And I had to climb up on a chair, and I rang that bell. Ding, ding, ding. He says, imagine there's a fire somewhere. And he leapt out of that bed. He ran across that firehouse bedroom in three steps, leapt onto that brass pole like Superman, and he and was down three stories in two seconds. I ran over. Wow. Can I try Uncle Tom? Nope. Why not Uncle Tom? If you try to slide down that pole, you know what's going to happen? What Uncle Tom? You're going to die. <laughs> but you can try it if you want. Okay. I ran over to the bed. I pretended like someone was ringing that bell. I jumped out of the bed. It took Uncle Tom three steps. It took me about 38 steps. I finally got to that pole. Now, When Uncle Tom did it, it looked very simple from the edge of that circle to the pole. But I was only three and a half. To me, it looked like it was the Grand Canyon to leap for that pole. And I saw three stories down, Uncle Tom trying not to laugh, me staring at that pole. You're going to (laughs) die. Now I was embarrassed. Every one of my older cousins made that leap. I was going to make that leap. I ran back 38 steps forward, jumped as far as I could, and I thought I missed it, but I didn't. I caught it on the way down. (sighs) When Uncle Tom got on that pole, he went down in three seconds. Me, I had to scooch down the pole. Scooch, scooch. Scooch, scooch. There's a fire, kid. Go faster. Scooch, scooch, scooch. The, f- the house is burning, kid. Scooch, scooch. They're all dying. Ah, I finally got down to the bottom. He put that helmet on my head. It was so big, it was like wearing a garbage can. He put his jacket on me. It was so big, it was like a massive blanket. He said, where's my little nephew? He took the fire coat on, he he took the helmet off, and he boosted me up into the big fire truck behind the wheel. When Uncle Tom drove that truck, I have a picture of him driving, and he grabs a wheel like this. When I had to grab that wheel, it was like this. And he got next to me, and he started pointing out all the things in the fire truck. Who's ever sat in a fire truck? Who's ever sat behind the wheel of a fire truck? I was behind the wheel grabbing on, pretending like I was going to a fire with my Uncle Tom. I was so happy. And my kid said, hey, kid. My my uncle said, hey, kid, whatever you do, don't push that button. And then he pretended to look out the window. He wasn't looking at anything. We were in the garage in the firehouse. But he looked out the window a long time, and I looked at that button. And I pushed it, and it was for the sirens. And you know how loud they are on the street. Imagine how loud they are in the garage. I pushed that siren. Firemen came from everywhere. Uncle Tom pretended like he was mad. What's the matter with you, kid? You stop doing you know that. You push that button again. You know what's going to happen? What, Uncle Tom? You're going to die. 
And all the firemen went back to their kitchen or to the places, whatever they were doing. And then Uncle Tom said, whatever you do, kid, don't pull that cord. (laughs) And he pretended to look out the window. He was looking at the brick wall, looking at nothing, but he looked for a long time. I looked at that cord. What was that cord for? The horn. I had to climb up on the seat. Uncle Tom wasn't looking. I reached up. I pulled the cord. The horn was even louder in the garage than the sirens. It was so exciting. Firemen came from everywhere. Uncle Tom said, What did I tell you? You like all that? You said, Man, will you kid? The fireman went back. He said, You pull that cord again. You know what's going to happen? You're going to die. He turned around. We were having a blast in that fire truck. One of the firemen took a picture of us. I still have that picture at my house today. He said, whatever you do, kid, don't turn that key. He turned and looked out the window at the brick wall, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. And Uncle Tom wasn't looking. The firefighters weren't looking. I reached forward. I put my fingers on the key. And he's, <laughs> and I never turned that key. But I have such great memories of that day at the firehouse. My Uncle Tom would send me every now and then newspaper articles that his town would write about the fires that they put out or the people that they saved. In Boston, every winter, the ponds freeze over and the kids play ice hockey. Is there a lot of ice hockey playing around here? No, not really. So they would even, and if you didn't have a pond, you would just put up boards in your back and you would fill it with water and it would freeze over and the kids would skate. Well, every winter, one of the things that my uncle had to do was save ice skaters who fell through the water in the pond. They couldn't wait for the ponds to freeze. And if it was not quite frozen thick enough, it was dangerous. The adults knew that, and they would put up signs, don't skate yet. The ice is not thick enough. That's like telling a little kid, you know, don't touch that. It's hot. What do they do? Oh, it's hot, you know? So my uncle, I have a picture of him. He had to get a kid who was in the middle of this pond. He was clutching onto the ice. He was very cold. His teeth were chattering. He was almost blue. And there was a chain of firefighters. One sat at the shore, and he was holding onto the legs of another firefighter and another firefighter. They were all on their bellies. If they stood, it would, they would crash through the ice as well. And my uncle was the last one in that chain of firefighters, his hand going into the icy water and pulling that ice skater out. I have that picture on my wall at my home as well. My uncle's favorite thing to do, though, was to take all 15 of us cousins, and we would go in the summer to Nantasket Beach. Has anyone been to Nantasket Beach? Some of you have, just south of Boston. Nantasket had two or three things that were amazing about this beach. One, it had a whole massive amount of sand that we could play in and make all kinds of sandcastles. And two, it had some of the best waves to ride in all of New England. My uncle was very tall. The older cousins were very tall. And whenever the waves were very big, all the older cousins of my uncle would go into the water and they would body surf the waves. And we didn't have surfboards or boogie boards or or skim boards or any of these things. And so there was Uncle Tom surfing the waves in. And all of the younger cousins would say, when do we get to surf the big waves? Uncle Tom said, when you get older. We want to surf them now. If you surf them now, you know what will happen? You're going to (laughs) die. So we would sit there. Uncle Tom would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We'd all eat the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. The kids who were old enough to surf the waves would say, can we go in yet, Uncle Tom? He says, not yet. Hasn't been 30 minutes. 
If you go in before 30 minutes, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> and we all said, you can say it if you want, you're going to die. Well, when we were a little bit older, we said, Uncle Tom, are we old enough to ride the waves yet? He said, yep. He grabbed three kids in each hand and threw us into the water. <laughs> I learned to surf the waves by almost drowning over and over again. But now all 15 of us and my Uncle Tom sometimes will all ride the waves together. We love riding the waves. We love making sandcastles. We love eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with Uncle Tom. But the thing that was great about Nantasket Beach at that time was we had a boardwalk. Do you know what boardwalks are, you, salt, you Utah people? A boardwalk is basically just a huge arcade. There was pinball and video games and skee-ball. Who's ever played skee-ball? There was things you could throw and knock over the pins and win a big prize. There were rides, the bumper cars. We love the bumper cars. But Nantasket Beach, when I was younger, had something behind the boardwalk that was even better. It was one of the world's biggest wooden roller coasters. Here's a silly question. Who's, who's ever been on a roller coaster recently? These roller coasters are definitely the biggest and fastest in the world, but this wooden roller coaster was incredible. And we would say, Uncle Tom, can we go on the wooden roller coaster? He says, no. Why not, Uncle Tom? If we go on that roller coaster, you know what's going to happen? What, Uncle Tom? You're going to die. And every year we would ask, and every year he would say no. I know why he said no. There's a couple reasons. The youngest cousin, Marky, wasn't tall enough. You know how you have to be this tall to ride the roller coaster? So there's no way he was going to take all the older cousins on the ride and leave Marky by himself. So he had to wait until Marky got old enough. Also, it cost money to ride the roller coaster, and Uncle Tom didn't have a lot of money. So he couldn't afford to pay for all 15 cousins and himself. So every year, even though we probably were old enough to ride that roller coaster, we never rode it with Uncle Tom. And every year we'd ask, and every year he would say no, until one year we said, Uncle Tom, can we ride the roller coaster? And he said, yep. We walked up towards that roller coaster, and the closer we got to it, the more I thought that maybe Uncle Tom was right. These modern roller coasters are made of steel beams, and you get in, and there's a thing that comes down, and a thing, and another thing, and a helmet comes, and knee pads come on, and you're stuck in that roller coaster. And even if it goes really fast, there's nothing dangerous about today's roller coasters. This old wooden roller coaster had wooden beams that were not attached to anything. And there was sort of nails hanging out over here and screws that I hadn't put in. And then when the roller coaster cars rolled up, there was no safety bar at all. There was no side. It was completely open. There was a little metal bar way at the front that if you held on to really tight, you might stay in the cart. And I got into the front seat of that roller coaster with Uncle Tom and all my cousins. We took up the whole cart, filled in behind, and then we started to go. Ching, 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 ching. And then we got into that first hill. You know how this is? These new ones, they speed up there. It's like zoom. But this one, it was like a, a, a big metal greasy chain, but this wasn't as greased as it could have been. It was actually pretty rusty, and it would hook into some hook behind the roller coaster. But every now and then, the hook would give way. So we would go ching. We go up three and back four. We didn't even get on the first thing and it was scary. Uncle Tom, we're going to die. We 
told you, that kid, I told you. And we would go up three and down two and up four and down two. We didn't even get to the top of that thing, and Marky was already throwing up in the back. <laughs> up and two. And then finally, we get to the top, and it was not as tall as the roller coasters you have today, for sure. But after that harrowing ride up to the top, the roller coaster would sort of peek over the end and come back, and peek and come back, and peek. And you got to see the drop that you were going to do five or six times. Wow! <laughs> Oh, no! And you saw that there were some rails missing. Ah! And there was a... Ah! And it was like that. And now Eileen was throwing up in the back. We didn't even go on the first part of the ride yet. And then we go like this, and it starts to go down. And we're all grabbing onto that metal bar. Timmy's legs are flying out the side, and he's throwing up. Everyone's throwing up. We haven't got down the bottom of the first thing yet. Uncle Tom was... Ah! Ah! Uncle Tom, is it true? It's true. This is the day we're all going to die. We hit the first curve and legs were going this way and heads were banging together and elbows and elbowing. And no, it was unbelievable. A really bad smell in the back. I'm not even going to tell you what that smell was. And we came back in covered in bruises. Everybody except for Uncle Tom had vomited. We stayed there. We didn't die. Let's do it again. And we did. And we didn't die. And we have memory after memory of riding that roller coaster. And I got older, and I ended up moving away. And I came back to visit my uncle about seven or eight years ago. And just for kicks, we drove by the old firehouse. He's in a new one now. It's a big, beautiful firehouse. And I remember the time when I had to grab the wheel like this. I'm not as tall as my uncle, but I saw, you know, the old fire trucks. It was kind of great. And we drove past past Nantasket. I looked out towards the beach, and I saw the waves were still big. I saw kids making sandcastles on the sand. And then I turned around, and there was a little remnant of a boardwalk, just one little shop that had one little arcade. But behind it, the roller coaster was gone. Uncle Tom, what happened to the roller coaster? He said, they built condominiums. Condominiums are apartment buildings, and I don't know whatever happened to that roller coaster. I said, Uncle Tom, why did they get rid of that roller coaster? He said, It's not funny. Not funny. Some kid rolled that roller coaster. You know what happened? He died. <laughs> I looked it up on the internet. It was not true. They just wanted the real estate. But that is the story of the roller coaster and my favorite, Uncle Tom. <laughs> Gracias. Thank you very much. Uncle Tom and the Roller Coaster of Death, a story told for you by the great storyteller Antonio Sacre. You know, you can find some of Antonio Sacre's work in our archive at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. And you can even find video performances of some of Antonio's work by uh, uh, finding us on social media, liking us on Facebook or uh, following us on Instagram or Twitter. There's all kinds of great stuff there, including, like I say, video content of some of these great storytellers. It's been a pleasure for me to bring 
bring these stories to you today. Stories from Sandra Singer, Sheila Starks Phillips, Antonio Sacre, and a tune from Ryan Shoup. The Hour was written by Trent Horton, our audio engineer is Stuart Foster, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I look forward to seeing you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.